Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. This is the second of two Encore episodes we're posting this week to fill the gap in between Christmas and New Year's and the gap in between your ears with some positive thoughts and thought-provoking conversations during a time when a lot of podcasters are going dark, in which we're actually dark too. But if you haven't listened to these episodes or haven't listened to them in a long time, always worth going back into the catalog and remembering the great conversations we've had with some very delightful guests. The other one is with Dr. Drew Pinsky from the second episode of Crazy Money Ever. So by all means, check that out. And this one is one of the most engaged with episodes of Crazy Money in the 200 original episodes that we've done. It's with a guy named Paul Shervish, who is the director or former director of Boston College's Center on Wealth and Philanthropy. And he's the co-author of a paper called The Joys and Dilemmas of Wealth. And is one of the most comprehensive and insightful studies of the ultra-affluent ever. And it exposes from people with a lot of money, as he'll explain, the fears and joys that they have, what's important to them, what money has allowed them to do, and what motivates them to give money to philanthropy, for example. Paul's an interesting guy. He's a former Jesuit priest who was strongly influenced by Karl Marx. So you might think, well, he's got a chip on his shoulder about wealthy people. But indeed, in his work studying the affluent, he has come to develop an appreciation of their humanity. And as he discusses in this conversation, he's come to believe that there's good rich people, there's bad rich people, there's good poor people, and there's bad poor people. And so we shouldn't necessarily project our preconceived notions onto either category. Did I say this already? This is one of the most engaged with episodes of Crazy Money ever, both in terms of the length of which people listened and the number of people who did listen. So I think we're on to something in this conversation, and I know you will find this enjoyable and worth your time. This, my friends, is Paul Shervish. Professor Paul Shervish, welcome to Crazy Money. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Paul, how did you come to study the wealthy and philanthropy? I did my dissertation on unemployment at the Institute for Research on Poverty. However, it's important to note that the founder of that institute at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Robert Lampman, did the most famous of his books on wealth. It is also the fact that I became very well-versed in Karl Marx, in contemporary Marxism, and in his writings, and studied them extensively. And at one point, it dawned on me that what Karl Marx was about in the past through his modes of production, was the study, not of poverty, but of modes of production of wealth. And his optimism about the transition to socialism was that people would have an interest in it, the majority would have an interest in it, the workers, the majority would have an interest in it, because that mode of production, where people were getting the just fruits of their labor, would actually involve a higher quality work, a more satisfying work, and a greater dedication to work. And work would be organized in a way that greater wealth would be produced for a greater number of people. Finally, while still focusing on poverty and unemployment in my work at Boston College, a gentleman named Tom Murphy, who was an alumnus of Boston College, came to the dean and said, I have a question. What happens to wealthy people when they have become financially secure? Or his word was, have achieved redundant wealth. <laughs> redundant wealth. That's good. Well, 
And that was important for him. He was an actuary. So he was a very smart mathematician and had gotten a degree from the University of Michigan in his actuarial science. So was going to the University of Michigan and to Boston College, where he got his undergraduate degree, to see if he could find, through deans, a professor that could answer his question. When people become financially secure, do they become more attracted to and involved in philanthropy? Now, that was a biographical question for him, because as he became more financially secure, he was indeed becoming increasingly philanthropic and dedicated to various projects in philanthropy. But he was a man who thrived on and essentially became wealthy on the basis of ideas. And he felt that having the chance to study this question academically would be very important because in 1985, at that point, he saw actuarially wealth expanding dramatically. And interestingly enough, was it Business Week or another one of the business magazines that had a front page caption that says the United States now has one million millionaires. So that was a big event and the growing wealth. I told him at that time that I could answer his question. When people become wealthy, some become more philanthropic, some don't. If you want to know what it sounds like, what it looks like when some do and some don't, what is the process by which people do become who aren't philanthropic, become philanthropic, we can answer those questions. Now, as somebody who studied poverty and Marx, did you have certain assumptions about the wealthy going into this project? Absolutely. I tended to assume that they were less moral, generally interested in profit at the expense of their workers, at the expense of society. Some wealthy, of course, did presume to take care of others through their philanthropy, but philanthropy itself was enabled by the concentration of wealth. So that ability to concentrate wealth that you could give away was in itself a criticism of the system and the individuals. In other words, if things were more equitable, no one would have pulled up these amount of resources so that they would be able to make those contributions. In those large amounts, yes, exactly. So this was my starting point. It was a kind of a attacking posture. And just to point out, you're a former Jesuit priest as well. So you've spent some time in the service of your fellow human and have not set your career set on profit maximization from an early age. And was, in addition, an academic in a sociology department. <laughs> and in a research institute at the time that was studying poverty, inequality, and how to boost the, the welfare of unions and wage earners. And I got a call a few years later from David Case Johnston, who was the kind of wealth and income guru for the New York Times. And he and I became friends. But at one point he says, Paul, you sound so much more conservative. Why is that? You don't seem to be critical of the wealthy the way you used to be. I said, what I learned was that wealth, that a good and evil is not distributed along 
the economic or racial spectrum. Tell me what you mean by that. That from the inner city, there's killings and drug dealings, and the poor can be mean and hurtful of other people, just as the wealthy can be. So that there is not an automatic moral elevation of the poor and an automatic moral degradation of the wealthy. But playing devil's advocate, somebody might say, well, the poor have reason to act out. The poor have reason, they have justification for engaging in lesser moral behavior. You can say that, and you can also say that about the wealthy. Here they are as individuals within a profit-maximizing system. They know no other system, and they've been raised this way. The big difference is not to try to be a devil advocate about how their evil comes about, but really to appreciate across the economic spectrum how their goodness and their care comes about. Tom Murphy and I were at a early conference at the beginning of the study of philanthropy at Indiana University, and people said, how did you two get together? His friends asked him, what are you doing with this Marxist? Now to go back to your point about being a Jesuit, he was very imbued himself with the Jesuit spirituality. He would make retreats at Jesuit retreat houses, very much appreciated his philosophical and theological training, and continued to read and study theology and philosophy over the years, and was especially attuned to the Jesuit um, spirituality. So I, in my own heart, trusted him. And the more I talked to him, the more I understood he had something deeper going on. Well, what he said to the group was, yes, my friend said, what are you doing with that Marxist sociologist? And he said, he's a spiritual man, and I trust him. And that was the beginning of a great friendship. So what kind of studies did you start with? How do you start unpeeling this onion of the question around wealth and philanthropy, generosity, morality, etc.? Our first study was called, very simply, the study on wealth and philanthropy. There's a lot of access problems. Rich people don't like to fill out surveys. Or necessarily to talk. But what we did through Mr. Murphy's health, through the president of Boston College, through various other people, we got a advisory board of well-known people who allowed us to use their name in the brochure describing this study and then allowed us to interview them if they were wealthy or suggested names and allowed us to use their name in contacting people. But the most interesting piece of this interview research, this was not a survey, this was open-ended interview. I gave them a chance to talk about their lives for the first time in a non-threatening and to talk about their wealth and their wealth accumulation for the first time with follow-up questions that took them and their processes in life and their family life and what wealth meant to them and what they were doing in philanthropy or what they were not doing yet and why without judgment. It allowed them to experience the honor as you're doing for the people you interview of taking them seriously enough to follow what they're saying and to ask more questions. Tell me more. What were the findings about wealth and philanthropy that you took away from that that were surprising to you? First of all, the most surprising thing that happened was that what we found out in this first study 
shows up in our last study, The Choice and Dilemmas of Wealth. But the most surprising thing is something that happened to me, and I've already alluded to it. It was that I no longer felt deep in my heart the need to adulate nor to attack the wealthy. And that became something that informed my teaching, informed my politics, and so on. What changed in you? What I found was that there was goodness and reason and ability and family life and spiritual life also aligned with the ability to collect, earn, hold, advance great wealth. And great wealth at the beginning there was $10 million. This was in the early 80s, is that right? Mid-80s, 85, 86 was our study. The other thing that we discovered was what is the greatest advantage of wealth? What is the central trait of wealth? Marx talked about it as ownership of the means of production. Veblen talked about it as consumption. Others talked about it as status. And what we found to be the key attribute of the wealth holder was choice, freedom, freedom from, freedom for. And choice, not just in the spiritual realm, because they were as limited spiritually as everybody is and had to grow in that area. But in the material realm, they could have what they want. And so the question before all of them, whether they answered it in a way you and I would like or even in a way they would like, the major question for them was if you can have what you want, what do you want? What do you need? What do you want for society? What do you want for self? What do you want for family? Having that choice seems like a self-evident good, but does it also come with responsibilities and challenges? Absolutely. We coined a phrase, hyper-agency, that would reflect what that world-building ability of a wealth holder is, especially in the material realm, in philanthropy, in business, in building a house. Hyper-agency is the difference between living within the institutions and organizations that you find yourself in contrast to creating them. So you would create the business within which you and others would work. So you were creating, and you would find it in Hollywood. You find it not only in the rich, but great poets and great spiritual teachers. They're hyper-agents too, but all wealth holders are hyper-agents, at least in the material realm, meaning they can create the world within which they live and others live. You describe it in the introduction to the joys and dilemma of wealth as the ability to throw off the burden of prescribed social rules and reevaluate personal motivations and passions, meaning the choice to live your life the way you want to, absent material necessities that keep you going to work or things like that. Right. Can't fly by flapping your arms but you are going to have those freedoms that you just enunciated. And what you focused on was not only the external freedoms, but the internal freedoms, what we call psychological Mm -hmm. empowerment. The material freedoms, we split out into temporal empowerment, spatial empowerment. We call that principality. And we call the psychological empowerment individuality. 
Now, even that term principality, you see, shows that we thought of wealth as dialectical. The very same thing, like fire, that can burn your house down, Mm. can warm it. Mm. So from the very beginning, whenever we talked about modes of philanthropy or wealth, we always addressed what we called the special dilemmas of care and control. That whatever empowerment existed in that hyperagency could lead to increased capacity for care, and it could lead to increased capacity for carelessness. And we would not put any person we talked to in either one of those two categories, either adulate or attack them. But we would ask them about and listen for talking about themselves at certain points in their lives or talking about their associates or friends. We would listen for what they deemed to be and found out to be those negative attributes of hyperagency and carelessness and control and manipulation. Manipulation is very interesting. That's a word we used in those reports. The ability to manipulate is like manus is the word for manipulate. And that would be like manipulating puppets. So you can see the ability to create a world, not only within which you live, but others have to live, really has that great potential for manipulation as well as for special care. And we always tried to emphasize that. Well, let's talk about this study. Now, I want to give people an explanation of how incredibly wealthy the participants actually were. Approximately 89% of the respondents were parents with net worth of over $50 million. The average net worth was $78.4 million, and the median was $36.3 million. And this is in 2008, is that correct? Eight, nine. On a dollar value of time basis, you're talking about $50 million median and a $100 million average net worth. These are extraordinarily at least, extraordinarily at least. affluent households, right? Yes, they had lost a great amount of money. They didn't become poor. No. And they hadn't had this tremendous increase that took place from 2010 to 2020. Right. What you're saying is very right. The description is we asked participants to describe their ultimate goal and deepest aspirations for life, their ultimate goal and aspirations for their children, and ultimate goal and deepest aspiration for the world. And the follow-up core question is, how does your wealth help and how does it get in the way of these objectives? So can you break down in broad strokes, what are the joys and what are the dilemmas that you found being reported by these affluent households? The joys of course, involve things that many of us experience. Porsches, third wives, and what else? Well, how about the birth of a baby? Okay, that's good. So some of them are quite common to all of us. But let me start with the Porsches and so on. One gentleman talked about how he had wanted to build his own mansion finally and not be living. And this is hyperagency at its most. So he bought two properties next to each other in Beverly Hills. And he got permission to tear down the two houses. Where one house existed, he built his garages. Sure. uh, Because he was a car buff, but also had a lot of visitors. Okay. Now, this isn't the first time in history this happened. We have Hearst Castle, right? And uh, then he built his mansion on the other plot of land. 
One gentleman said to me, you see that field out there? We were at his office and he said, most people see flowers or corn. I see a high rise or an oil field or a mall or apartment buildings. Okay. Now this can go all the way from what one man did. He took me up to the top of a building in St. Louis where we were having dinner took me to the top floor and he said, I'm going to show you the things I've done in this city. He said, there's Symphony Hall. There's the Playhouse. There's this school. It reminded me of the dilemma in his particular life. His great pride was reminded me of the devil taking Jesus up on the mountain and saying, I will give you this and I will give you that. Yeah, for your kingdom, if you just bow down and worship me. And one of the things that wealth holders truly understand, which may be different for the next generation, but it still is the case that 70% of great wealth is still built entrepreneurially. So a lot of people didn't start with a silver spoon in their mouth. They didn't start as inheritors. And in general, the inheritors, if you ask for what are some of the self-understandings, the inheritors were a lot more concerned about the stigmatism of wealth among their friends and their moral stigmatism of having had advantage through what they might have considered ill-gotten gains. Unearned gains, at least. Did that affect their behavior or their attitudes? Yes. They were often and almost completely involved in leftist politics or in those days still social movement politics. Mm. At some point, the left in the United States uh, became surprisingly in bed with the Democrats. When in my generation, it was the Democrats that brought us the Vietnam War. Yes, I've heard the term social elites. We called them limousine liberals back in the 90s, but now it's different. And I'm not making those terrible judgments. I hear you. uh, Myself. I'm just saying that there was social movement people. They were active. A lot of these inherited wealthy. And you quote in What Are the Joys? One of the things is that in addition to providing loved ones with freedom from material want and the pleasure of giving them some luxuries is to support political causes, social change, and the arts and religious organizations. So one of the pleasures of having money is actually being able to support whatever philosophy you'd like to see proliferated in the world. Absolutely. And one of the things I have done not too long ago is I gave a talk on what I am now finding, if I pay attention a little more carefully, among more common people, financially common in that sense, I don't mean morally common, financially common people that I discovered when I studied the wealthy. Hyperagency is one of them. And how is that a thing now as opposed to back then? What we're finding in these group GoFundMes and so on, the ability or in Sanders campaign or others, the small amounts of money by many people, either in philanthropy or politics, can be gathered. The media and electronic media is enabling that to happen more than ever. But there is also a growing affluence that allows many people in society to have a hundred bucks or 200 bucks or a thousand bucks 
or 5,000 bucks over the course of a year to give philanthropically or to accumulate it over a period of years to make a larger gift. So one of the things that is happening today is that many regular people are starting to want to do what the wealthy are doing and to join together to try to make it happen. And we see that in the Wall Street movement. Yep. What was that called? I have the a- GameStop and AMC. I can't remember what it was called, but it was the Reddit group that got together and, and manipulated the price of a few different equities to the point where they stuck it to these rich hedge fund guys. But what I also meant was the social movement. Occupy Wall Street, yeah. Yes. So the ability to, to act that is a way to carry out hyper-agency as a group. I am hitting the road in 2024, and I want you or your friends who live in the places where I'll be to come out and see me tell jokes in person. It'll be great, won't it? It's going to start out December 30th in Black Mountain, North Carolina, right there outside of Asheville at the White Horse Black Mountain. January 11th, I will be in Austin, Texas at Roscoe's Comedy Club with my friend Paul Farvahar, Farvahar with our Two Pauls One Show show. We'll also be doing that show at, on February 22nd at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. That's right. It's an intellectual kind of town. We're doing that same show again, Zany's Comedy Club in Nashville, Tennessee on February 28th. And taking it to the DC Comedy Loft April 19th and 20th. May 3rd and 4th, I'll be headlining the Denver Comedy Lounge in Denver, Colorado. That's May 3rd and 4th. All these dates are on my website, paulallinger.com. Oh, also doing the country club shows around Atlanta, Dunwoody Country Club on January 25th with Andrew Stanley. January 26th, I'll be hosting for Mia Jackson at Capital City Club right down the street from where I'm sitting right now. April 18th, Atlanta Athletic Club. Uh, Headliner to be determined on that one. And I think there's another one, but I can't remember it right now. Anyway, paulollinger.com for the whole list of shows. If you can't come, tell your friends to come out. Thank you so much. So what are the collective anxieties when you surveyed these admittedly very fortunate people? They still had significant anxieties, some of which are specific to wealth and some are just specific to human beings. That's a great distinction. The key is to understand their anxieties as being neighborly or cousinly to their great aspirations. That which wealth can bring them was also that which wealth can destroy. And you asked me what could wealth bring them, and I didn't summarize it yet very well. Let me just say the joys were their businesses and their philanthropy, but their major joy was their families. Now, that's how they enunciated it. But I'm sure that some of them were, if not having their major joy being their business, their major amazement or their major passion or their major engagement or emotion was wrapped around that business life. Not to say there wasn't room for the family. Now, what was their anxiety? It was very much the same. The flip side of that issue. Yeah. And it's not surprising that they emphasized in this particular regard, the family. There were some who grew up with a great religious or moral background and were taking and making great efforts to make sure their children were raised with responsibility. And there's a series of things they did to raise their children with what I call financial morality. 
not being materialistic, being dedicated to some form of sharing, whether it be when you're very, very young or through philanthropy or volunteering when you gradually get older. The morality of uh, not lording it over others with a sense of privilege, those kinds of teachings. But what would often happen, wealth holders would find, and this is like, again, regular folks, one child out of three, two out of five, but one usually that was a great disturbance, if you will, like in Star Wars, a great disturbance, <laughs> disturbance in the force. In the force. That was my brother Cole out of the six of us. He was the disturbance in the force. Yeah, and I had one boy that was the disturbance in the force, but he was also a heavenly being at the same time. He was the most grateful. I call him the most mature and least mature of our children. So I say that biographically only to say that this is kind of the inner concerns. I mean, they also had children with diseases, with childhood problems, autism, Down syndrome. And not only were arguments with their children, not only was disappointment over them becoming jet setters, or not becoming savers, but just materialistic spenders and consumers, they were concerned about their inner lives, their marriages. And when it comes to family, the thing that the wealth holders were different about was that they worried about the interaction, the moral interaction that took place between their family leadership or mentorship, their parental teaching, socialization of their children. And their complaints about their children, I would go to meetings and would be asked the question by families, how much is enough? (laughs) Okay, and that would be the question that they would say. Who would be posing that question, the family to you or the parents to the children? In these meetings, the parents to me and to each other, I would always have it move toward what did you learn or what's bugging you Mm -hmm. too or what is parallel for you. but. The question I would throw back to them, if why are you concerned about this? And they would say, well, one of my kids is. And then I would say, well, who raised that child? And I said this not to be a smart aleck, not to be blaming, but to show that not everything is clearly a moral thought by somebody else. And what was happening to that child or what happened in that family when you provided so much leeway for vacations, for travel, for automobiles, for schooling, I guess for drugs, for alcohol, for neighborhood, for sports, for training. You can see all those special advantages. One gentleman presented this dilemma in a great way. He said, I told my son, if he doesn't get a 3.5 average at the University of Michigan, he's not getting that BMW. Okay. So you see right in that, you're shaking your head and not laughing at that. You see the <laughs> dilemma. No, you you see the dilemma right in there. This attempt to be, to raise a disciplined kid, to extend your own discipline. But what I was moving toward is that this is a relationship. The failure of the child is a relationship with the parent. They're either estranged, a disappointment, and then for the parent, a heartache, Mm. a worry, 
a hope that things would change after a while, disappointment about the breakup of the marriage, having chosen a poor spouse or having chosen a great spouse that you didn't treat right. So all of these things were kind of the family relationships. Now, when it comes to philanthropy, what would disappoint them was that their money was not used well. Right. And we see a whole movement that has accumulated about effectiveness and measuring yep. it and efficiency. We've talked to several of those people. Of course, that's, that's important. But also what would bother them about their philanthropy is that it wasn't focused. That over the years, they had begun to write what one gentleman called utility bills. <laughs> that's funny. Signing checks to utility companies. Right. That is, he's been paying his dues, so to speak. 5000 here, 20000 there, 100000 there. After a while, that was not as satisfying for a couple of reasons. One is that the philanthropies they were more involved with would begin to make greater requests, which would lead them toward narrowing their focus. But it would also be with their own initiative seeking. And one of the major things I discovered in this period from 85 to Oh, around the year 2000, when I wrote for the first time what I called the new physics of philanthropy. And the major new vector that I was finding by talking with wealth holders and reading the news and seeing what was happening was that for the first time, wealth holders were as a large group, not just as an individual here or there, initiating gifts, initiating involvements. And not just waiting to be pressured or asked or cajoled. One of the most interesting things I found in the, the results that I read were that most of these respondents, and let's remember that these people are on average, they have an average net worth of $78.4 million in $2,008. So if you left that in the market for the last 14 years, that's probably doubled at least, right? Double twice. They don't consider themselves to be financially secure. And they say on average, they would need 25% more to feel financially secure. And one guy loved this guy who said that what mattered most to him was his Christian faith and that his greatest aspiration was to love the Lord, his family, and his friends. He reported that he wouldn't feel financial secure until he had a billion dollars in the bank. So much for letting go and letting God. I mean, what do you take away from the fact that some of the wealthiest people in the world don't feel financially secure? When you get to the level of wealth you're talking about, 50% of their money is in a private business and it's not secure necessarily. One man I talked to when I was doing a high-tech donor study, I said, what is your net worth? I always find people are willing to answer this when it's anonymous. He said, let me look. This was back in the year 2001. He said 200 million less than yesterday. Wow. Okay. So I know what you mean so much for letting go and pressing the large. There was also one person who said, I need $10,000 a month. Okay. So there's the range. You said as a group, they didn't feel. No, we had people that gave themselves the 10 on the financial security scale. Some gave themselves a five and some were down at a two. And we could find rationale for that if we talked to them or if we looked at where their money was invested. But it is the case that those, we found this in our study that this was based on, we call it the Gates survey. We were sponsored by him. 
we did it. We found it in our high-tech donor study, and we found it in our original wealth and philanthropy study. It is the case that those who rank the highest on financial security, nine and ten, give the most in philanthropic dollars. <laughs> Right. But do they give more to charity because they feel financially secure or does giving empower them with a feeling of of enoughness? I think it's the former. I know what you're asking. And there have been studies in which people have said, you know, those that give more have a greater happiness on the happiness scales. Well, you can reverse that. And I know those studies and I would ask that. And the guy said, well, I have said it's causal, but it really is a correlation. Right. And it does go both ways. Yeah. I think financial security leads to this. And then there is, why not? Something you know about and I know about, a feedback loop. You're satisfied with this. There is nothing greater, says Aristotle, than the mutual nourishment that comes through friendship love. And what does he mean by friendship love? Considering the other as if that person were another myself. So Aristotle says a friend is another myself. So philanthropists, whether they be you and I, or whether they be the people at the high net worth level, when they make those donations, something does happen to them. Now, when we talk about manipulation and carelessness, Those are the cases where we find something material has come back to them. A place at the table in political contributions, access and a private bill. But when that which is coming back to them is immaterial in the form of gratitude, happiness, effectiveness, that brings great happiness. And Aristotle says, where does this all begin? This, again, is not so distant. It's already on our lips and in our hearts because friendship love, friendship love is philia, where we get the word. And it doesn't mean love of humankind. It means friendship love. And friendship love is this formal love that's mutual nourishment. And it starts in the mutual nourishment between parent and child. So what is philanthropy? But something that already extends to getting up in the middle of the night for the care of a sick child or a well child to your parents and then to concentric circles of identification. Who are the people that I identify as myself or my family that I wish to care for? That is the chief motivation of care, whether it be remittances by immigrants, which is the largest source of foreign currency and dollars to Mexico, is remittances. We sometimes hear estimates of remittances in the United States of up to $200 billion. Individual charitable giving is about $240 billion. Wow. So the laborer sending money back to his or her family is as big a force in country as almost as big a force as philanthropy. And that money making more of an impact in those countries. Because it's being spent immediately and it's going for the core necessities of life as opposed to a self-aggrandizing hospital or something. Well, I guess I wouldn't say, how about curing cancer? That's the adulation or attack. Would you say instead of curing cancer, what I was getting at was not that it was aggrandizing or non-aggrandizing. 
I was saying that it can be spent. It goes further. Sure. In those countries. Right. It can be spent many times over. And by the way, I don't mean, look, I'm all for, I'm all for beautiful new hospitals because my kids are going to go there someday. So I asked before about the question about these very wealthy people want 25% more. I'm fascinated with that, not because it proves that these people are greedy. And I may be on the low end of your spectrum here of, of survey people, but it's fascinating to me because you can have $100 million and still want more because that's the way you've evolved. I have everything I need and more, and yet there are things I see out there in the world and go, boy, that would be nice to have. Or not nice to have, nice to be in charge of. What do you mean by that? What's the distinction? Extending the horizons of being able to land and build colonies on the moon and go to Mars or change the way vehicles are running. I mean, just think of Elon Musk and both his carelessness and care. So I don't judge his soul. I'm just saying in the press, he is portrayed as devil or angel. But many of the wealth holders would say, oh, let's take Warren Buffett. Is he a devil or an angel? He gives $2 billion to $3 billion a year to Bill Gates' foundation, not for the endowment, but to be spent in the coming year to be allocated. And yet he's accumulating and he continues to accumulate. And you ask him, he says, it takes more intelligence. This is Aristotle's. This was Carnegie's phrase. This was the president of Harvard's in 1900s phrase. It is harder to give money away intelligently than it is to make it intelligently. Most people would say, well, let me have my chance. Uh, I'd like to try that. All right, we got to wrap it up here, but I've got one last question I'd love your opinion on. Based on your research, how much money should a wealthy family leave their children? Or how should they think about the question? The same way a high-level affluent family thinks about it. What would be destructive and what would be constructive? Here's one of the great problems. You may not know that ahead of time. (laughs) Okay. Secondly, you have different children. So money is love. And you know what I mean by that. But do you divide it equally or unequally? Do you divide it unequally according to need during lifetime? Those gifts and in the estate, the bequests become equal, no matter what the family already has. What's the difference between the son or daughter that Mr. Illich in Detroit at Caesar's Pizza has had work in the firm all these years And one is the Detroit Tiger owner and one is running Caesar's Pizza. These are extremely complicated questions. But let me just say this. I have heard wealth holders say, I am not leaving them more than $2 billion. (laughs) That's Buffett, right? He says, I want to leave them enough that they can do anything, but not enough or not so much they can do nothing. And then he says, I think I'm going to leave them $2 billion. I could do a lot of nothing with $2 billion. Right. What I'm saying, that begs the question. How do you know what's enough that they can do anything and not so much that they don't have to do anything? This is probably the greatest bee in the bonnet of people that criticize a low estate tax or the elimination of the estate tax is that it's creating dynasties. The problem is that so far it hasn't created dynasties that each generation has its own creators of wealth. It doesn't matter. You may be leaving them 10 million and not 10 billion. 
those are incredibly different categories of wealth. But you can still answer Buffett's question with the 10 million, right? Leaving each kid 10 million. And don't forget anybody that has $50 million or $20 million, and it's just growing 10% a year if they're investing it properly, that's $2 million a year to figure out what to do with. Now, the taxes are going to go to some of that, so you don't have to figure that out. But that's a lot of money, even at that level, to figure out what to do with. So this is a great perennial question. It is something that we don't know the answer to yet. This is new in history that so many people at such a young age have become or are approaching financial security. So the answers to how do I live a moral life of wealth is being discovered for the first time in history. If you go back and read Adam Smith, one of the first thing he says in Wealth of Nations is that the commonest worker today has a higher standard of living than the king in Africa in the middle of a tribe. Standard of living is growing so dramatically. What will happen when our society begins to have wealth that is expanding so much and becomes more widespread? Now, inequality, this is a very important distinction, is different from standard of living. Standard of living can be going up and inequality can become greater and greater and greater. I don't want to be political about this, and I'm not. I ask the question, will we in the near future, next hundred years, get rid of inequality or reduce it substantially? I don't think so. Even inflation increases inequality. But I do think in our lifetime, we're going to find a continued rise in the standard of living. Now, inequality breeds distinction, privilege, allowing some people to be at the horizon of the next stage of standard of living while you're not. But standard of living, we're going to find, is going to be increasing and thereby more ability for more people to do something beyond what they need for themselves and their family to do for others. We're going to be finding no end to philia, as Aristotle put it. And we may find that that is actually a better way of handling standard of living for ourselves in the world than a government that we heard the other day through NBC News has squandered, they think, up to four hundred and $80 billion of the $1.8 trillion COVID relief money. (laughs) Who's shocked by that? But what I'm saying is, you know, some people think government's the salvation for this. Do you want to put more into the Pentagon? Do we want to put more into not having to follow the money and guard it? So instead of my seeing Felia ending, I see more and more people becoming able to participate in it and it becoming more democratized in that way. Well, let's all hope that you are predicting the enablement and the inspiration for these increasingly wealthy and increasing number of wealthy people to do the right thing and help their fellow human. Paul Shervish, I really appreciate all the work you've done. It's my pleasure to share with this audience. Is there a place where our listeners can find out more about you and your work? They can do this by writing to me, and I would put them in touch with the Google 
website where my writings are. Just use paul.shervish at bcbostoncollege.edu. I want to thank you for really knowledgeable and courteous questions. Thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed our conversation and enjoyed chatting with you after we turned the mics off. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a very kind soul with a brilliant mind, and I'm grateful to Paul and his colleagues with all the work they did on this topic because I feel like it is definitely worth our contemplation. Along those lines, let's get to the takeaways, shall we? First of all, as Paul said, good and evil is not distributed along the economic or racial spectrum. Let's say that again. Good and evil is not distributed along the economic or racial spectrum. You could add other spectrums to that. The gender spectrum, the sexual orientation spectrum, the religious spectrum. No philosophy, no gender, no wealth category has a monopoly on truth or an inherent claim to either virtue or should they saddle the burden of immorality just based on a couple of boxes that they have to check. I think this is highly worth our time. And when you see somebody prescribing virtues to people based on demographic variables, remind them that that denies the other person's humanity and doesn't acknowledge each of our own agency in determining whether or not to live a moral or immoral life, regardless of what demographic boxes we check. Secondly, the answer to the question, how do I live a moral life of wealth is being discovered for the first time in history. Well, that's a lot to think about, isn't it? That for these millennia of human history until very recently, we haven't had the abundance to be able to consider what's the best way to use that money on the margin. When we get to redundant wealth, what do you do with it? Up to this point in history, we haven't had the luxury of being able to think about, well, how can I use my money to create the kind of of world that I'd like to see happen? How can I use my money in a way that is a reflection of my values? And that takes us to number three, giving away money, as Paul said, giving away money is way harder than you think it is. You think, oh, I'm just going to write a check to the United Way, or I'm going to just put a building or endow a scholarship at my college or high school. And then you get into it and you start to go, wait a minute does this high school, you know, or does this college reflect my values? Does this job training program that I'm investing in, is it taking a political stance that I believe in or don't believe in? Organizations are dynamic, as is your own personal political and moral philosophy. And so you not only have to find partners that are are doing the kind of work in the world that you want to see more of, but are doing it in a way that's efficient and sustainable and scalable it's just really trickier than you think it is. So whether it's a hundred bucks to your local food bank or a hundred million to job training, literacy, or wellness programs, think about what good you want to see in the world before you start writing checks. Also, very interesting thing that Paul brought up. You know, if you die and let the government take money out of your estate, you're basically abdicating the opportunity to turn your money into values and giving that over to the government. Now, I'm not saying government programs aren't really important, and there's a lot of things that the government can do that individuals can't do or that private organizations can't do. But think about it. Does the government and the way they spend money reflect your values better than the way you could do it on your own? As we age and get closer to death, you start to think, well, there's a few things I can do with my money. I can spend it, I can give it away, or I can give it to the government. Now, which of those things are going to be the opportunity for you to create the most good in the world as expressed through resources. That's it's something for you to answer, not for me. Anyway, we'll be back next week, ladies and gentlemen, with uh, comedian Christian Finnegan, who is hilarious. He'll be in town doing some shows with me next week, and I know you'll enjoy his 
uh, irreverent, funny, and insightful glances into the world of money. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.